James this morning. We're going to be in James uh, chapter 1. We're going to break it up into two parts, verses 12 through 18 with verses 19 through 27. And this is just a, a beautiful book. And it's important to note that James is not one of the most beloved books of the Bible. In fact, James gets very little love from most people. Starting with Martin Luther in 1522, who wrote this about the epistle of James. He said, St. James' epistle is really a right, strawy epistle compared to these others, Romans, Galatians, 1 Peter, and 1 John, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. Now, what Martin Luther was essentially saying here is, James does not unpack the gospel explicitly the way that Romans does. And he would later retract that statement. However, what Luther is missing when he made that statement about the book of James is this, is that the book of James is essential as Christians. Yes, it may not unpack the gospel the way other books do. It may not be as exegetical towards salvation as other gospels and other epistles are, especially those of Paul's writing. But let me be clear here. Luther is not saying that James should not have been included in the canon of Scripture. Luther sought to clarify its place with regard to expressing the gospel. It's true that James does not unpack the gospel when compared to Paul's writings. Specifically, Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians is who Luther is referencing. But here's why the book of James is so essential. It is a call to Christian action. And that's where a lot of its unpopularity comes from, because James, he tells it like it is. He's a straight shooter. He's going to be there to step on your toes, and he's not only going to step on them, he's going to stomp on them three or four times after. Brother Aaron preached last week on trials and what that means, what that looks like for us. And he did a phenomenal job of it. We're going to start in verses 12 today. And we're going to look at temptations. Now we see, you know, the, the, the graphics on social media that say, don't be led astray by, the, by these trials and temptations. But it's important to understand the difference between a trial and a temptation. So that's what we're going to look at very first thing today. We're going to read verse 12 right here. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the world, word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Temptations and trials. And in this context right here, James chapter 1, in the Greek it's actually the same word. If you look it up in the Greek, it's actually the same word. But if you go back to the origin of the words, they have very different meanings. Even though the, the word is technically the same, the meanings are vastly different. A trial for a Christian, for those of us here that call ourselves Christians, a trial is directly from God. 
It is a test from God meant to increase our faith in him. And as Brother Aaron preached last week, the testing of our faith produces endurance and stamina so that we may go further and do more in the kingdom of God. Trials are from God in order that we grow. Temptations are never from God. In the same event, in the same valley, you can be going through a trial and a temptation. One is from God, the other from Satan. One to test you and the other to tempt you. Let me be clear, though, God tempts no one. And any temptation hatched by Satan must pass through God's fingers first, even though God is not its source. We see this in the book of Job multiple times. Satan desires your downfall. God desires your development. Do we have any sports fans? Give me a honk if you're a sports fan. Any kind of sport. My brothers. No, ancestors. Just kidding. One of the biggest things about sports and winning in sports is the study of game film, right? Now, Peyton Manning, who I got the chance to see play for my beloved Denver Broncos before he retired in 2015 and after winning Super Bowl 50. It was a beautiful year for me. I cried a lot. It's very momentous. But Peyton Manning was considered to be one of the most cerebral quarterbacks we've ever seen in the NFL. And I agree with that. He was. He spent so much time, not on the practice field, but in the practice room, looking at game film, studying his own games, studying opponents' games, looking through the playbook, writing plays. So think of Satan as an expert football coach. We could say Bill Belichick, or as Arkansas fans, we could say Nick Saban. We won't go there. However, this is why you want to think of Satan as an expert football coach. Satan spends much of his time watching your game film so that he can tempt you and lead you to sinning. Satan cannot make you sin. However, just as a good coach knows the opposing team's weaknesses, so does Satan. He knows how to appeal to your evil desire so you, that you will be drawn away to sin. He knows how to lure you out what the bait is. We all have a sin tendency. There's a pastor at Prestonwood I had the pleasure of meeting one time who sits on every ordination council for every pastor that's ever been ordained by there. And his question is one question only to one of the, the candidate for ordination, and it is, everyone has a sin tendency. Most pastors are for girls, glory, or gain. What's yours and what are you doing to stop it? And knowing that, going into an ordination council, you should feel better that your sin tendency is known and you know how to fight it because Satan knows it. He knows how to appeal to your evil desire. While writing this book, James knew that Satan was the great deceiver. And in verse 16, we, say, we see James plead with the readers to not be deceived. When we are tempted and we follow through with it, we break fellowship with God. And when we are feeling tempted, we must change our focus. We must focus on the goodness of God. Look towards the Lord for his faithfulness to you and stop and look around at all the external blessings God has placed in your life. Think of all that God has done for you and rest assured that God has not abandoned you. Verse 17 tells us that God is the father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. God never changes and always shines. When Satan is tempting, turn towards God. Pray, seek him, and temptation can be beaten. 
We know that temptation can be beaten because Jesus overcame direct temptation straight from Satan. You and I do not rate temptation directly from Satan. We don't get Satan. We get his minions. We get the demons. Satan is not omniscient, nor is he omnipresent. So do not give him that extra power over you by thinking he is. There's only one omniscient and one omnipresent being, and that's God. You are a son or daughter of the one true and living God. Don't succumb to temptation and lower your dignity. If you're in the midst of a trial, if you're in a valley, this is normally where I say hold hands, but we're going to do horn honks. Who's here ever been in a valley? If we're honest, we've all been in valleys, right? No matter how great your life may look on the outside or how great you try to make it look on the outside, we've all been in valleys. If you're in the midst of a trial or a valley, don't be deceived and don't be fooled, brothers and sisters. Your flesh is going to incite you. You're going to want to believe that God is not good. Your, your logic part of your brain is going to take over and be like, if all this stuff is happening to me, there can be no God. Cling to his faithfulness. You're going to wrestle with comparison and doubt. Don't be deceived and don't be tricked. Cling unto God. Get on your knees and pray. It's interesting that the book of James was written by the half-brother of Jesus. I mean, that'd be an interesting position to have, but we have evidence in the New Testament that James, while Jesus was doing his earthly ministry, thought Jesus was crazy. I mean, if you had a relative, half-brother, cousin, something like that, show up and be like, hey, I'm the coming Messiah, you'd probably think he's crazy too. James thought he was so crazy, he showed up with other family members and tried to grab him. Because that's what you do. You, take, you grab them and you put them in the mental place. Take them to an asylum and lock them up, put them in a straitjacket. That's what you do when your brother starts saying he is God. You come and grab him. Can you imagine what that would look like today? A bunch of redneck cousins pull up in your truck. Hey, we're going to hogtie you and throw you in the back of pickup right here. I'm going to take you all on down to the hospital because you're saying you're God and you're not. James is over here saying, man, I grew up in Egypt with you, bro. These magic tricks, they don't. I'm not buying it. Yet right after the death of Jesus, something happens where now all of a sudden James has convinced his half-brother half is God in the flesh. He worships him. He's the key elder in the establishment of the first Christian church there in Jerusalem. And ultimately is martyred. Being commanded to recant on his claim that his brother is God in the flesh, he refuses and has his skull bashed in. Here's an interesting fact for you. The book of James only mentions Jesus twice, explicitly. The whole letter is actually a little commentary on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And if you remember Matthew 5-7, through 7, if you read the letter of James with that in your mind, and really with that echoing in your ears and your heart, you'll begin to see and to hear the teaching and the imprints of the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry all over the book of James. And to that point, the title of this sermon is called Practical Christianity. You could 
swap out any synonym with practical, pragmatic Christianity, workable Christianity, doable Christianity. Because as we see in the book of James right here, it is all doable. It is all workable. It is all pragmatic and practical, what we are being asked to do. Our second point today, we only have two points. The first point is the difference between trials and temptations and how to appreciate the difference. Because if we do not appreciate the difference of that, we can get the two confused. But the second point of this is true religion. And we're going to be in verse 19 through 27 for this. Verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Let's pause there for a second. First time I read that, in preparation for the sermon, conviction. Verse 20. For the, man, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive it with the meekness of the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So right off the bat, we see in verse 19 that James is writing about behaviors. James mentions these behaviors again and again and again and again. One of the more pronounced and really concerning ways the community was not living in light of their identity and their destiny as first fruits of God's salvation was they were struggling with speaking and listening in anger. Jesus wants them to know that this anger that's working itself out in their mouths is not pleasing to God. He says that very plainly in verse 20. He says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness or the justice of God. James's point here is really simple. The behavior going on in your life together is not something God approves of. This anger, this way of speaking. You know, Jesus, again, from the Sermon on the Mount, puts it even just more straightforwardly. This is not good fruit. This being quick to speak, slow to hear, quick to anger is not good fruit. And on a side note, after just three months of marriage, I can attest to each and every one of those facts. Not listening and being quick to speak. Even if it's funny, it's not a good idea. But that's essentially what James is saying here. And he's afraid this is actually spoiling their health and their witness as the first fruits community that they're supposed to be. Friends, when Jesus, just like Jesus, uh, when James, just like Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, is talking about anger here, he's not only talking about the external outbursts and fits that happen in our lives that may have happened in your life today or yesterday or this week. He's talking about that for sure, but let's not pretend as if preschoolers are the only ones here who have fits of anger or jealousy or whatever. He's also talking about the deeply settled anger underneath the behavior as well. He's talking about the deep-seated lusts, the deep-seated fears and entitlements and pride of our heart that creates the outbursts, that energizes the outbursts. It's where the outbursts come from. 
That's what Jesus said, right? Oh, you say don't murder anybody, but you hate in your heart. James is saying the same thing. They are actually saying these things with their mouths, and he is saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe you're not murdering, even though it seems like maybe they were if you look at chapter 4. But he's saying for sure this behavior is not okay. He's actually getting deeper than that as well. Don't miss that. Listen, as one who has battled with anger his entire life, I feel like I can in humility and in humiliation just say to many of you this morning that I believe there are many here who are more angry than you've ever dared admit, maybe even to yourself. You're enslaved to it. You're an angry person and you've been denying it. You've been justifying it. But you're enslaved. You're enslaved to the lusts of your heart and the lusts of your flesh. You're terrified, you're entitled, and it comes out. And some of you, it comes out really violently, and others, it comes out really passively, violent passivity even. But you're angry. I think part of the invitation this morning, just so you know, is that if that's you we talked about, God loves you. Just like he loves me, he's saving me, and he wants to save you from that. He wants to heal you from that. He wants to transform you from that. I know that because he says it in verse 21. That's where the Holy Spirit goes. He says, therefore, because these things don't please God and because they enslave you, therefore put away or take off all filthiness and rampant wickedness. That word there, to take off all filthiness, is this image of these just filthy clothes that he is saying. Take off this behavior, this filthiness, this wickedness in your heart that's coming out in your life that you're walking in. Take that off. This is an invitation, an exhortation, admonishment, a command. Take it off. You know, reading that scripture there and looking up and seeing how some of the commentators put it. It reminded me these days of mudrooms and houses. Who's been in a new house where they have a mudroom? Give me a honk. Okay, so a couple of you. It's this new thing. And I was completely blown away by it. Because how many of you give me a honk if you played outside as a kid and got really dirty and really muddy? There you go. See, back in the good old days when you did that, you had to get on the front porch and Mama said, don't you come in my house and get my house dirty. My mom's here for the record this morning, so I'm making fun of her a little bit. But she said, don't you be coming to my house and get my house dirty. You in those muddy clothes, you better take them off. So you had to do a little streaking on the front porch because you had to take them off outside and get inside. Now they've got mud rooms you come in. But it's all about you're dirty. You go out. You've been playing. You get muddy. You've got to take it off. The reality, though, is, is if we're this worried even about our own homes, how much more worried should we be about the household of God? If we're putting mudrooms in our homes, do we need a mudroom in God's house? Figuratively speaking, not literally. Are you saying you just think you're going to run about and you're going to smear this stuff over my household? Take those clothes off. Put on or receive, pick up and embrace with meekness the implanted word, the gospel, which is able to save your souls. The whole point of the passage we're reading today, this is the exhortation. If you're taking anything away, this is what he's saying. Take off all manner of filthiness and wickedness and receive. Meekly humble yourself and receive the word of God. Believe the gospel. Submit your life and your heart to it. It's easy to say, I believe the gospel. It is. 
there's millions of people in this country that say, I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, but in reality, if they die tomorrow, they would die and go to hell. Don't miss what James just did in this. He said, listen to this. He just took the words concerning behavior, the angry hearts and the angry words, and he took it straight to the heart of the problem. He went straight to their submission of the gospel. He didn't stay talking about their anger. He didn't say, let me give you a mantra. He didn't say, give, let me give you a, a yoga pose with this really cool CD and some uh, running water in the background to beat that anger. He said, you're angry. You're speaking in a way that's ungodly, that's not producing the righteousness that pleases God. If you've been on Facebook, we've been doing a counterculture study by David Platt. And week one of the study, we talked about don't be offensive. We can't let our personal politics, our personal opinions, our personal preferences get in the way of the gospel, first off. But second... Do not be offensive. The gospel is offensive enough. You don't have to add anything to it to make it more offensive. But if this is you, if you're speaking in a way that's ungodly, not producing righteousness that pleases God, you need to receive the gospel afresh. You need to submit yourself to the word of God, which is able to save you. It's able to save you from these behaviors. It's able to save you from your sin that's indwelling, and it's, able, and it's keeping you from pleasing God. He is saying, listen, humble faith in the gospel is what pleases God. This is the type of righteousness that goes deeper than that of the scribes and Pharisees. It's submitting yourself, believing and receiving the gospel of grace. This is what saves us. It's what contains all the power God would give us that we need to live and persevere in this life of wisdom and hearing and doing what we've been told to do. And this is how, my friends, we build our lives on the rock. I want you to just take a moment with yourself right here, right now. Not your, not your wife, not your husband, not your kids. Not your brothers and sisters, not, not anything, just yourself. And honestly ask yourself, have I submitted to the gospel? Because if you haven't, then you need the gospel afresh. And if you don't anymore, you need the gospel afresh. You need Jesus to do something in your life to reawaken that desire. Turn away from your sin, put on these, embrace Christ, and obey him. Some of you here have never done that. You wouldn't even profess to be a Christian, and I'm so thankful you're here. If you're going to take anything away from this, this is the message of Christianity that left to ourselves we can't and don't please God. There's absolutely nothing any of us here can do on our own that pleases God. But God has made a way for us to bring him pleasure and to be accepted by God. That's what, through what Jesus Christ has done, what he's talking about here, the gospel. Jesus has come and he has lived, he has died. He's made a way through his wrath-absorbing death for you to be set free and for you to know God and for your family to know God, for you to finally be able to do more. There are three types of people here today. Those who are Christian, 
and has submitted to the gospel. Those who are not Christian, they have not submitted to the gospel. And the third kind is this. Those who call themselves Christians, who bear no fruit, who have not submitted to the gospel. Because I'm here to confront you with the truth of the Holy Scripture. If you call yourself a Christian, that's not good enough. You have to submit to the gospel. You have to submit yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. There's no other way. So, with these thoughts in our heads, let's just bow our heads, close our eyes right here, right now. And you have to honestly be honest with yourself here and and look in and think about where you are, where your heart is, and all of this. You have to stop and think and be honest. Only you can know. But I would wager that we have all three, three types of people here today. If you're new to the faith, I don't want to discourage you. I don't want to scare you away. If you're not new to the faith, then we should know better. Submission to the gospel is the only way. There's nothing else we can do. There is no way to live here on earth, no act we can perform, no works we can do that will get us into heaven, that will grant us eternal life. All we can do is to pronounce Jesus Savior of ourselves and our hearts because that's what we need. We need a Savior. And that's what the gospel is about. The gospel literally means good news. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, we're just going to pray today. Father, we're just going to, we just turn this over to you. We trust you. We love you, Father. And we know there are people here that need you. There are works to be done for your ministry and your kingdom. There are kingdom causes that need to be picked up and carried forward. Father, just clear our paths and make them straight, Father. I pray for each type of person out here this morning. Father, I pray for the professing Christian who might be in a valley right now or might be on a mountaintop. Father, we're a faith family here, and if if we have family members in a valley, we want to know. So, Father, we we pray for those who are in a valley. I pray those that are on a mountaintop that they will declare your name from the mountains. Father, I pray for the second type of person, the person who, who can willingly admit that they are not a Christian. Father, I pray they heard something redemptive this morning. I pray they heard the gospel in a, in a way that will just touch their hearts, Father, that your spirit was working. 
I firmly believe there are those here that are not Christian this morning. And that breaks my heart. As a pastor, my desire is to see every person come to know you and have a relationship with you. And I pray that's the desire of the people of this church, Father. I pray that moving forward, that's what we do. That's what we're known for is that church where radical life change happens. A church with the crazy Christians that all they want to do is talk about their awesome Savior, Jesus and how he can change someone's life. Father, we pray for the third type of person. Those who think and call themselves a Christian, no matter how much lyrics, how many lyrics they've memorized from hymns or from worship choruses, Father, no matter how many scriptures they've hidden in their heart, If they do not have a personal relationship with you, then they have nothing. So Father, I'm just praying for conviction this morning that if that's the case for any person here watching at home in this parking lot, the conviction would be had, Father. That we would that they, they would come to us and that we would be able to, to counsel them, to love them, and to walk them into a relationship with Jesus Christ, your Son, through your Holy Spirit, Father. Father, we have lost and dying people all around us, those that are sick, those that are hurt. Father, we're in a culture today that says there is no God. We're in a post-Christian nation. That's where we live. We have a culture that predominantly says there is no such thing as a God. I'm not an atheist, but there is no such thing as a God. That should break our hearts. That should light a fire in our souls. That should excite us that we can run in any direction and share the gospel. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit has been moving this morning. Pray that lives have been changed and souls have been touched. Pray that you love us, that you would guide us, that you would take care of us, that you'd help us to have a great week. Father, I pray that for each person here, Father, that you would put someone in their path that needs to hear the gospel in the coming week just one person. Father, put someone in my path that needs to hear the gospel. Put someone in Brother Aaron and Brother Brian's path, Brother Ben's path that needs to hear the gospel. Each and every one of us here today, this morning, Father, put one person in our path that needs to hear the gospel. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for being able to gather here under your banner. Hide us behind the cross as we move forward this week, Father, and help us to share the gospel everywhere we go. Help us to not 
be Pharisees. Help us to love people no matter what. We pray all this in the beautiful, holy name of Jesus Christ.